I have found that when you need it, even if you're stuck, when you need it, if you lean into art, it will catch you, it will support you, it will get you through at least to the next thing. It's never let me down. print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you are looking to add some pizzazz to your practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of their additive glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This glitter additive can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Mike Schultz. Mike is an artist and printmaker currently getting his MFA at Alfred University. We talk about how his early passion for art fell off as addiction began to take over more of his life, getting sober and going on the journey to reconnect with making, teaching art on the Thai-Burmese border, and what brings him back to art school now, years after his BFA. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go back to school with Mike Schultz. Hi Mike, how's it going? Hi Miranda, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to chat today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Yeah. I feel like you're someone who was really bouncing around the periphery of my print world for a long time because, among other things, we're print friends who spent extended periods of time in northern Thailand, although not maybe not at the same time or definitely didn't ever connect. We might have overlapped a bit here and there. And so you're someone who I think when I've been out in the world, people have said, do you know Mike? You should know Mike. Yeah. And then I met you and I was like, I should know Mike. <laughs> I'm so glad I know Mike now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like I've, I've known about you and Tim for a long time too because of your podcast and I think through SGCI. And you know, I'm sure that we have mutual friends in Thailand as well. I know we do. We have some overlap. We have to. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it feels like this is going to be a great opportunity to sit down and have a long form chat about yeah. you and what you do. Let's and do would it. you kick us off by letting people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Yeah, I'm. my name is Mike Schultz. I'm an oil painter and a printmaker. I'm talking to you right now from my hometown in Ithaca, New York. And currently, I'm pursuing my MFA in expanded in the expanded media department at Alfred University in Alfred, New York. We're on summer break, so that is what I'm up to now. And yeah, I'm happy to be here. And let's talk about Prince. Awesome. So you said you're in your hometown. Mm-hmm. Tell me about growing up in Ithaca. Tell me about being a young artist, or if you even identified as a young artist, were you a kid who went to museums, were you a kid who drew? What was early art life like for little Mike? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I was a latchkey kid, and I grew up with a single father, and I, I am one of those people who used drawing and art making as a tool for survival. You know, it kept me company and drawing to this day is still the, it's, it's still the thing that grounds me. If I ever have a problem or there's something I need to work through, it really does help not only writing about the thing, but if I make drawings of it, like it can help me to figure it out, but for sure will ground me. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, that has remained a thread through my entire life. Like, and I'm also a workaholic and always have been. And so making art is just something that I've always done for really no other reason other than some drive to create or drive to make like a, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, you know, actually, can I, yeah. can I tell you something that I thought of just this morning? I had a memory of this is something I haven't thought about in 35 years or more. I had a memory of sitting in my grandmother's study. She, she was a writer, so she had a typewriter. And I remember that she had a stamp pad. And I used to sit in her study and make prints of my thumb. I'd make thumbprints with her stamp pad. And then I would take a ballpoint pen and draw little arms and legs and faces on these little thumbprints randomly just thought of it today kind of while thinking about what we were going to talk about on the podcast and realizing that that's like a <laughs> it's like essentially what I do uh. <laughs> it's like a dumbed down version of like what I do now just a little bit of printmaking and I embellish it a little you know totally I was gonna say would you would you consider that your introduction to printmaking <laughs> <laughs> yeah and later on at Ithaca High School we did do line of cut printmaking I think we made some kind of monotypes or monoprints in our art classes, but it wasn't really until I was getting my BFA from the Kansas City Art Institute where I had my first real introduction to all of the different types of printmaking. I think when we were in our foundations year, we had to just do lino cuts, etchings. We just had a a very short like couple of days in the print, print shop. And then after that, I went into the oil painting department and didn't think about printmaking for 10 years. Hmm. And it wasn't until I was living in New York City in 2007, another strange moment, I was, I was living in Brooklyn. I was broke. It was New Year's Eve, or no, it was Christmas Eve, and I was all alone. And I got a letter from my grandmother in the mail for a hundred bucks. Like she mm. had like given me a check, like in a Christmas card. And just out of the blue, I was like, I'm going to take the train into the city and I'm going to get everything I need to make a lino cut. Wow. And so that's what I did. I took the train into Manhattan. I went to the art store. I got some linoleum blocks and just everything I needed. And I came home and I made a print. And so that was my reintroduction to, to printmaking. Um, Where 
do you think that impulse came from? Had you seen printmaking recently or I have was no it the idea. print gods just came down and, and gave you a little flick on the ear? It might have just been the kismet. It might have just been like the, yeah, exactly that. It was just out of the blue. I was like, I want to smell mineral spirits. <laughs> you know, I need some more fumes in my life. It really was like this thing, just like out of the blue. I just like had a yearning to like make a print. And it was so satisfying. They were yeah. terrible. They weren't great prints, but but it was so fun to do and enlivening. And yeah, and I've been making them ever since. So. And you were able to find a, a shop open on Christmas Eve that would sell you the supplies? Yeah. I was. I was. It might have been a Dick Blick. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Open until the, the afternoon. Last, last so. minute for all you and the other last minute shoppers, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And And so tell me a little bit about that space in between graduation and and ending up in broken Brooklyn and and needing a little nudge from the print gods, yeah, because that's that's a jump. Yeah, so it were, is, you know, were you were you continuing to paint during that time? Were you showing? Did you fall away from art a bit? What sort of was that time period like? Yeah, well, that's another. That's a great question. Yeah, after I graduated from the Kansas City Art Institute myself and a lot of my friends moved up to Portland, Oregon. And I started drinking really heavily and I fell into a bad way. Um, for a number of years, you know, I, I got really into the punk scene and just riding my bike and I cooked in a kitchen and I washed dishes and it was fun and we, we partied a lot and I think we we just had a good time living the life that a lot of young people live. But I, it turns out I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and as it turns out, like surprise, surprise. <laughs> so it's not it's not conducive to living a very great life. Like it was fun for a while, but after so many years of being so hungover every single mm. day of my life. And I drank a lot. I was, I'm was i one of those people who could just drink all night long and drink hard liquor and just drink, 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 and then be the last one up, go to bed at four, and then get up and somehow survive my, my dumb day job and do it all again. And then while that was happening, I started making less and less art. Yeah. Because as it turns out, it's hard to make good art when you're really drunk. Mm-hmm. And so that lasted until about 2004, until late 2004. And I realized a couple of things. I realized, number one, if I didn't quit drinking, I was going to die. I mean, sincerely, like I had, I had had like, I mean, I feel like this might be too much information. No. But yeah, it just, you can tell. You can tell when you, when you get too close to the edge. Um, mm -hmm. so I knew that I knew that I had to quit. And so I just chose a date and I quit in October of 2004 and I haven't had a drink since. Wow. Um, and I consciously did it number one, so that I could live and number two, so that I could make art. Mm -hmm. I, I did it so that I could, because basically what I would do is every night I would get drunk and I would just imagine and like yearn for making art again. I would think about when I made art 
which is just mm-hmm. sad. So yeah. 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 I mean, it sounds so much like there was an article in Artsy or Artnet recently that had to do with sobriety and, and artists. And it had a quote in there from someone who knew Jackson Pollock and it didn't say, it was something about like, the problem wasn't that Jackson got drunk and painted. The problem was he got drunk and didn't paint. Exactly. And I think he's one of one of the many famous artist addicts in the canon. And I think one who people often look to when they're kind of living a bohemian artistic life. They're like, oh well. Yeah. Pollock was an alcoholic, like hard drinking, that sort of thing. And mm. and it's it's something that I think in, in terms of my experience just being a young person in the arts out in the world, it's really is kind of glamorized or sort of being kind of a sloppy artist or being artistic. I mean, it's, it's a pass and it's also often I think seen of as you're truly an artist if you know, you're suffering enough to be slowly killing yourself with a substance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 There's a lot of harmful mythologies that artists are drawn to or around the arts, and that is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, another one is, yeah, just just the mythology that it's, that that's, that's like somehow inspiring. And like you said, bohemian. I remember talking to someone who knew Francis Bacon and they were talking about knowing him personally and how unromantic it was to literally Mm. pick him up out of the gutters when they would find him drunk, having like pissed himself or Mm. whatever it was, because he, that's, that was his lifestyle. Not, it's not romantic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's, 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 yeah, I think one of those things that you can only see as romantic if you haven't experienced it either personally or or, or with someone close. Right. Or or it can be romantic if you don't actually have a problem. Mm-hmm. Or maybe if you have half a problem. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about, I mean, this is, I am just one person telling my particular experience. I did not have half a problem. If yeah. I have a drink, I will drink until I am very, very drunk. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just my, that's my makeup. So other people can do it. They can have the wine and cheese and that's great for them. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, or, you know, it was just a month ago. I think I told you about this over, over text. Mm-hmm. Um, about a month ago, a childhood friend of mine, a, a very good friend from Ithaca, his little brother who I grew up with and I spent a lot of time with as a kid, mm-hmm. drank himself to death. Mm-hmm. And he was in the arts, albeit it was he's in the music world, but he wasn't in like the music scene. He was like a classical musician and like wow. in the theater that side of that 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 realm of the music world. But he had the thing, and and it got him. And it it's really it's really sad, and. It's such a waste. Like, mm-hmm. 
it feels really unfair and it feels just very wasteful for that like young, super bright person to be gone. And to think about his like family having to bury him. He was only in his late thirties. Mm-hmm. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I remember us talking about that and I'm again, like, just really sorry to hear it. I'm sorry for you and his family and for him. It's it's something that, as we sort of alluded to earlier, it can be such a such a calling for people who are artistic in nature. And I think that it that part of being artistic in nature is is being someone for whom the world is very affecting. And that can be too much, honestly. Yeah. It can yeah. be too much. And then, and then when you when you discover that there are things that come in you things you can put in your body. I was gonna say things that come in bottles and leaves and pill mm-hmm. canisters that when you put in your body, you get a little respite from yeah. that intensity. Mm-hmm. It's and that and then then you mix that with the mythology. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a hard combination, I think. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I think that I don't know if this is total horseshit or not to say this. Because this may not be true. I, I it sounds a little like bullshit to say that alcoholism might affect one group of people more than it does another. Having said that, I feel like artists in general are empaths. And because we're empaths, because we can we're, we tend towards empathy, that means we're more sensitive. Like I am a very sensitive creature. I know I think you are too. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends who are artists are very sensitive creature creatures. I feel like we're tuned in to some things that maybe other folks have an easier time blocking out. So like you were saying, I was drinking so I could sleep at night, Mm -hmm. literally so I could go to sleep because I couldn't sleep without being very, very drunk. That was like part of the cycle that I, I got into because I, because of, because of some sensitivity and then because, and then I got addicted to this substance yeah and then it's cyclical in Mm -hmm. nature yeah i think that's what people often can talk about when they talk about sobriety or people who have been in recovery is that the addiction to the substance passes so much more quickly before the emotional or spiritual addiction yeah to escape yeah yes when i quit drinking i literally i had to stop i had to stop listening to classic rock <laughs> it was like no credence i had to stop playing pool uh-huh I, I had to like cut out so much that i loved out of my life because i just couldn't associate with it anymore mm-hmm. yeah. it, and that's all the emotional attachments mm-hmm. and then I'll, actually also after i after i quit drinking Several months into it, I was just chain smoking and mm. drinking pots of coffee. 
And I realized I'm trying to do this thing. And if I don't quit smoking cigarettes, I'm full of shit and I'm just unhealthy in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I actually, I quit, I quit smoking cigarettes four months after I quit drinking. And then I really lost my mind. Ah. It was like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs for like two and a half years. Just crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes a long time to work these substances out of your system completely. Yeah. yeah Cause um, you, you kind of are stifled at the age you were when you started using. 100%. Because you yeah. ne- you just didn't do any of the growing up. You didn't do any of the like dealing with the fucking feelings mm-hmm. for that entire time you're yeah. using, right? And then yeah. then you end up in your 30s or in your late 20s or whenever it is that you that one stops and and if you'd been using substances to <laughs> fight the feels, mm-hmm. they didn't go anywhere. No. They just were waiting. <laughs> they were waiting and they're worse now. Like it's mm-hmm. harder. You know, one of the hardest things for me is that when I got sober, I expected to just pick up my paintbrush and be able to paint again. Mm-hmm. And I had lost my chops. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I graduated from, I took a year off and I did some carpentry when I was in Kansas City. So I ended up graduating in 2001. And yeah, it was 2000, late 2004, probably 2005 is when I started painting again, late 2004, right after I quit drinking. And I just, yeah, it was terrible. I, was I had sort lost of like technically, like you couldn't, lost you couldn't do the, the technical work. Like you'd have a vision and it just wouldn't come out the way no. you'd wanted it. I just like pickled my brain or something <laughs> because I, I just went back to it. I was like, I couldn't paint in the same way. Mm-hmm. It's wild looking back at it. I mean, I think I just, I think I just overdid it. Yeah, you know. So but also, art yeah. is also a practice, though. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. You, you mm-hmm. have to, it's it's a muscle that you have to work on, and it's a, it's something you have to practice and flex and work out. Like you can't just drop it and walk away for it from it for years, mm-hmm. and then expect that it's just going to be picked up just like that. And so it makes sense. Yeah, totally. Gotta, it's a practice. So what was that kind of getting back into art making like? You said it was – it sounds like it might have been a bit humbling because, you know, mm-hmm. you you realized that you didn't just have this innate talent that was untouchable mm-hmm. that you – and and so originally were you were you thinking about shows? Were you thinking about making just for you – when you're kind of like, all right, I I need to get back in touch with this. What was that time like? Yeah. So this was all pre social media. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just a very different world back then. And really what I was doing was just trying to make something good, something that I liked. I did a few murals. I, I, I did commissions. I, but really, I just spent a lot of time in my studio alone working for mm. years. And it wasn't until I was living in New York City, I, around the time I, I ended up working on a couple of projects that I'm proud on. I, I worked with a group called Squirrel Thing Recordings, and I collaborated with a friend of mine, Sarah Wilmer, on the cover to the Connie Converse album. Do you know her music? Mm-mm. Oh, she's amazing. Connie Converse is amazing. And then I got to do some illustrations for 
Molly Drake. They mm-hmm. also produced one of her albums, and she was Nick Drake's mother. Yeah. Um, and so those were those were two projects that I was really proud to be affiliated with and associated with. And it was around then that I started making work that I I started. That's when I started to like my work. It took years. Yeah. I mean, it was probably like 2009 before I was making things that I even liked. And and so during that time, tell me maybe where that sort of dedication came from. That like, because that's that's a that's a long time between trying to pick up the brush again and creating something that you're feeling proud of. Yeah. Was it just that you had this memory from school that kept you going or was it just a kind of an act of faith? Yeah. I mean, I think just as a callback to what we were talking about before, I really think that I personally just have to make art. Mm-hmm. If I don't make art, I go crazy. Like mm-hmm. I am deeply unhappy. So yeah. it really is just satisfying some need inside of myself to create. And it's funny, like I always say that I don't know when something is finished and I don't know when something looks good because I never do. The only thing I know is when I can look at a piece of mine and there isn't the voice to tell me to change it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's very negative. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I just... When it I'll, stops being crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because otherwise I sit down and I look and I'm like, oh, I got to change that green. Yeah. Or whatever it is, I have to like make that line different. That's when I know when something's done is when I sit down and I can look at it and I don't have like the need or the voice in my head saying, change that, fix mm-hmm. this, change this. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think it's some kind of internal, yeah. And, <clears throat> and so at what point you, you told us that that very cinematic story of printmaking, finding you like a ghost from the past on yeah. Christmas Eve, is that where it started to fold itself in to mm. your practice? And then as someone who had such a depth in oil painting – where did printmaking fit in and and when did it kind of become and why? Maybe it'd be a more interesting question. Why did it become so integral to your practice and your voice and making what you need to see in the world? That's a great question. I think the way that it, the way that printmaking fit into my practice was that I had been making these large scale narrative oil paintings. And I just wanted a way to supplement what I was doing and kind of add to the imagery. I have a very good friend named Jack Baumgartner, and he's a bit of a Renaissance person. You know, he just, I don't know if you know his work, but he he makes incredible woodworking and oil painting and printmaking and he puppetry and he's Mm -hmm. a farmer and he does animal husbandry, like he does everything. And Jack had been making oil paintings and linocut prints for a long time. And I'm, I'm positive that Jack had an influence on me. And in fact, we had a we had a show together where I flew some paintings down from New York and I went to Kansas. We had this small show there in Wichita together. And I'm some of the first linocuts that I made that I liked were for that show. And they were complimenting these oil paintings. Mm. So 
that's how that's how it's sort of getting folded into my work. But again, I think I I stopped I stopped making prints for a number of years, and it really wasn't until I went to Thailand. Mm-hmm. So in <clears throat> let me see. In 2010, the person I was dating was doing some research on the Thailand-Burma border. And I ended up going over there with her. And long story short is I ended up working at and helping to establish an arts and crafts studio there on the Thailand-Burma border that was working with young Burmese folks. And I was working alongside a Thai ceramicist, and uh, Burmese batik artists, some really talented, sweethearted folks. And one of the things we did at one point was we, again, we went and sourced some printmaking materials up in Chiang Mai. That's when I went and dropped in on the folks up there. And what's the studio? Cap Studio, yeah. I went and dropped in in Cap Studio. I found it. I just like looked it up. I'm like, oh, there's a printmaking studio. And I went and just said hi to them. And they kind of pointed me in the right direction to find materials to work with. So, yeah, and that was another moment where I'm like, oh, like, mineral spirits. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> yeah. oh, fumes. Like, oh, there's nothing like, there is nothing like mineral spirits in the morning. Mm-hmm. Or is that one of the things that I love that the the guys at Cap Studio do is mm-hmm. they smoke cigarettes in the acid room with no shoes on. <laughs> It's just. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, it's that's some that's some non-U.S. health and safety right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so, when you were working <clears throat> at this arts and crafts studio with the the Burmese kids, was you putting printmaking part of the curriculum just because you that you had loved it and you thought that they would they would be into it and, and yeah. So yeah. the, the arts and crafts studio was started by my buddy, Patrick Kearns, who was a brilliant guy. He was heading an end. He was heading the parent NGO. And then he started the crafts, the arts and crafts studio with a woman from Liechtenstein named Jasmine Spalt. And the whole idea was to train young people from Burma. The, most of them are like, high school age or college age young folks who were either migrants or refugees from the political situation right across the border. I was, mm-hmm. I was living in Nesa, Thailand. And so the entire idea of the studio was to just give them training, like artisan training in ceramics, in batiks, in drawing, like any way that they could make a living other than just falling into sweatshops or what other people do to try to survive when they're in that position. So it just was printmaking was just one, one, one of many things that we did. Like we made clay tiles and wooden furniture and worked in a lot of different, really interesting, interesting things for that project. And then are you doing printmaking as a personal practice in tandem at this time? At that time, you know, what was, amazing about living in Thailand in 2010, 2011, is that I didn't have a smartphone. Mm -hmm. Our internet was really bad. Mm -hmm. 
I played a lot of checkers, and every night I drew. Hmm. I lived in a place with no air conditioning. It was swampy and hot and mosquitoes and wonderful. Thailand, I'm sure you have a lot of feelings about that place too. Like living in Thailand, living in Southeast Asia was one of the most important experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. Like it just, it's the first time I really felt at home mm-hmm. living in that place. Like there's something about it that really makes sense to me. Yeah. So staying up in the evenings and drawing in the heat, and there's something very familiar and good about mm-hmm. it. It was really good for my heart. So, and it was also maybe because the internet was so bad. I mean, I did talk, I did like post things on Facebook, and I had a blog at the time. Remember blogs? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was just blogging in Thailand. So I had a blog, and I would post I would post images on there, but but really. It was the first time where I just felt so disconnected from everything and out of any kind of a public eye. Mm -hmm. And I made this huge body of drawings, these ink drawings. And I don't even know if I haven't even shared them. I've never shared them on. Oh, I'd love to see them. Yeah, some of them are really dark. Like a lot of it was like processing the just the horror of what my students would tell me uh-huh. um, they had experienced. But then after a while, I started drawing more fantastical, just more really just like escapism. You know, I started using drawing again, like I did in my childhood to escape the stressful situation that I was in. Because mm. Thailand is one thing. Thailand is a wonderful place. May sought, it's kind of a scruffy little border town. It has an up, it has its ups and downs. I do love it there for a lot of reasons, but it was not without its stressors. Yeah. I felt stressed out. It brought up a lot for me to be there. Like it it was a stressful environment. So again, I leaned back into my art. I really leaned into it hard yeah. for escapism. You know, it's a survival tool. And I found that a, a professor once said to me when I was getting my BFA at the, the Kansas City Art Institute, a professor once said, no matter how bad life gets, your studio will always be there for you. Hmm. And I found that to be true. Like I have found that when you need it, even if you're stuck, when you need it, if you lean into art, it will catch you. It will support you it will get you through at least to the next thing it's never let me down mm-hmm. and i am one of those people I, I have to like i have to get things out with my art otherwise like we talked about i get a little screwy <laughs> so yeah wow no that's 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 beautiful i love i love everything that you were just saying there i know that i haven't seen that the ink drawings that you alluded to but i have seen these monotypes that you've made that mm. that are certainly looks like they come from your time on the Thai Burmese border that they're reflective of that and they don't even really look like monotypes but they they have I don't know I just I think that they 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 have a a, a real graphic quality to them that I don't associate mm-hmm. with monotypes very much but definitely some of them are clearly directly influenced by your time there. So were you making them while you were there or was this something that you 
created afterwards reflecting on these notebooks that you had? So the monotypes came later. What actually came first, I guess, to answer your question, I had the, I had all of this work that I had done at the art studio. And when I returned to Portland after living in, in Thailand for the first year or so, I was there for maybe 15 months, 13 months. When I returned the first time, I did a series of still lives about my experience there from objects and other things that I had collected. And I, I did a Kickstarter and an independent project, which brought me back to the Thailand Burma border. And I did teacher training with young adult Burmese college aged art teachers. Mm -hmm. And these art teachers were then going into migrant schools or they were going into some of the refugee camps and then they were teaching our classes so basically what I was doing is I was working with these young folks that I had worked with before, which was great because now I had known some of these these younger people for years. And the project was called Thailand Burma Flora Fauna. Mm -hmm. And I was doing basically how to pair plants and animals and how to make design compositions in a way that are interesting for imagery that might be saleable. Yeah. You know, just do yeah. training, training with them and like how to make designs appealing to folks who might be traveling through who might want to buy their work. So I did that. I did that project and those were all in black and white. And then later on, I did a large body of monotypes, probably around a hundred prints. Oh, wow. Which are the ones you're talking about? They're all just ink on a copper plate. And I developed a technique I developed a technique that I'm not sure a lot of, I'm sure it's been done before, but using templates and the way that I applied the ink and then the way that I removed the ink where they don't look like monotypes. Yeah, they, they really don't. More, yeah, they look more like something else, like either some kind of relief print or etching or something. Yeah. And so when I saw them, they look definitely like Intaglio to me. Mm -hmm. um, so what is, what's the process that you're using that gets that, it, they look so different. They look very precise, which is something I don't really associate with monotype. They don't mm -hmm. have that painterly gestural quality and the blacks are, are, are really black too in mm -hmm. them as well. Yeah. Yeah. So those, the process is basically, basically I would use the same copper plate for all of them. I would apply the ink and I would use templates to block things out. And then I would basically just remove the ink and draw into it. But I would do it in a very specific way. And I invented these little scratching tools to kind of remove the ink in the ways that I needed to remove the ink. And it was really tricky. You know, they, they would take me anywhere from three days to a week to make mm. a single monotype. And I ran the risk of if I, depending on the humidity, of the day that I started or, you know, the humidity of the week, depending on how old the ink was, there are all these variables. The ink could dry before I pulled the print. Yeah. So that kind of printmaking, I always describe it as like, it feels like you're printmaking on the edge of a knife. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you cannot fuck it up. <laughs> like there is so much writing when you're spending a week on a single image 
and you just have one pull to get it right, you better have your ducks in a row. Yep. <laughs> I love that. I actually love that. And I would never I would never feel so alive as like the 10 minutes before and after I would pull one of those monotypes. Oh, I bet. Yeah. You know, because there's no redoing it. And after a week of working, you're like, I had like a checklist. I had to dummy proof it and make a checklist of like, did you do this? Are your hands clean? Is the paper damp? Like you a know, surgery, right? Where they're like, like, they're like date of birth, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Is this the right patient? You're like, yep. what are we taking out? The appendix? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, and so now you're at Alfred university and you're, you're doing your MFA and you're in a situation where more distractions are removed. You know, there's no such thing as being a maker in a completely non-distracted situation. We all have relationships and money worries and Mm -hmm. all the kind of things that go along with it. Mm -hmm. But tell me about the decision to go get your MFA a while after your BFA and, and, and what was not happening in your personal practice that you were like, okay, maybe this is what I need. Like, this is how I need to push myself forward. Hmm. Yeah. I, I have long wanted to pursue my MFA Mm. and you need it to teach. So a lot of my friends have been teaching since their early twenties. Right. And now they all have quote unquote houses and cars <laughs> and 401ks and health insurance. You know, and at the time, like I was like, yeah, stuff's not important. But you know, as it turns out, it's nice to have an income and what? to be able to Yeah, I know, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy. So part of it was needing a trajectory out of Portland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had been living in the same house for nine years, more or less, give or take. And I needed a reason. I've I've been missing the East Coast. Mm. And so this opportunity came up, and it was important to me that if I got my MFA, it did not put me into debt. Yeah. And I had met Joseph Shear at SGCI a number of years before, and he had told me about the program at Alfred. So it had been on my radar. And so I wanted to, there's just something in me where I wanted to come and have the experience of working with people, because I've never been trained as a printmaker. I'm, I'm basically self-taught, for better or for worse, probably uh-huh. for worse. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot that I don't know about printmaking. So I wanted the opportunity to just work with better equipment and learn new things. And really, truly, what I want is to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I want to make bad art. I want to make work that doesn't work. And I've done plenty of that in my first year. Surprise. (laughs) I've made some (laughs) bad work. So that's it's, But it's great. Like I, I am a firm believer in trying things out. And I'm a firm believer in that it's good to make failures because I had learned over the years how to appease people, how to Mm -hmm. appease an audience and how to make things that are saleable. And, you know, it, there is a certain burnout that can happen from chasing that. 
Mm. Oh, I bet. Yeah. There is a certain burnout from being beholden to likes and shares and being beholden to what you think people will want to purchase. Mm. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at this point, like I still, I'm still going to keep selling my prints. I'm still going to keep selling my work. But at this point, I'm not entirely convinced that I ever want to be without a day job. True. Mm, because I, yeah, I don't want to put that pressure on my work. It's like what Elizabeth Gilbert says. Are you familiar with her? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love her. So, yeah, I remember listening to a talk of hers and she was talking about the the pressure of demanding from our practice mm. that it pay for everything. And this is not 1972. Shit is expensive now. Mm-hmm. It is hard to make a living. It is hard. Dude, I, I spend a lot of money every time I go to the grocery store. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And to ask of our art to cover all of our bills all the time when we have so many, it's like we're getting, it's just so expensive. Yeah. I just think that that's, that's, that's a lot. And I got really burned out over doing it for so long. You know, the hustle and the burnout from the hustle is real. My buddy, Kelly McConnell, whose work you might know, she and I used to always joke that there should be like an AA or like an Al-Anon type of support group for under earners, like or for artists uh-huh. and burnout Yeah, because it's so real. And we would get together and talk on the phone sometimes and it would just be like, oh, you know, <laughs> talking about trying to have shows and art fairs and selling work and people who said they were going to buy things and then didn't buy them. And it's just the hustle is, the hustle is real and the burnout is real. So That's such a, an incredible point that I feel like I, I don't want to, I don't want to skip over at all. You know, that, that idea that we're holding our practice and ourselves and our lives to a model, which is so profoundly outdated. And you talked about how expensive everything is, like the grocery store. Like, fuck. Mm-hmm. I Or your phone bill. Just like one thing. Yeah. Your, our phones cost $1,000. Yeah. And our phone bills are $1,000 plus dollars a year. A year, yeah. I mean, it's insane. And, and you look back at – I'm sorry. Go oh, on. no, no, no. I was going to say – and like I'm, I'm thinking about even like school. Mm-hmm. Like go talked about going and getting your MFA and how not being in debt was important to you. And, and a lot of people have school that I have school that Tim still has school that. And mm-hmm. so it's like the hundreds of dollars that just go to trying to pay off the tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. just to get to the point where you might be qualified enough to have your work be sold or taken seriously. Yes. So it's just it's yeah it's 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 so wild to me that I've never thought about it in that context before of like when was the last time that was reasonable and by pursuing it are we just putting a lot of negativity and energy on not only our creative practice but also ourselves and also like our quality of life rather than looking mm-hmm. at 
the reality of what it is to be a working artist right now and just saying, I absolve myself of chasing this because I understand yes. how chasing it affects me. But yeah. Can we talk about debt? Yeah, of course. Let's so, talk about debt. We've already been ragging on the boomers for how easy they had it. <laughs> <laughs> so a friend of mine a long time ago pointed me towards, might have been Debtors Anonymous. So I, the one that I picked up from there was Don't Keep Broken Things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as artists, we tend to collect and save everything. I, I know this is a generalization, but man, we can be art hoarders. Like I am a paper hoarder and I have to keep myself in check now. Like every few months I have to go through my inks. I have to say, okay, it's okay to let this go. Yeah, right. It's okay to let go of like paintbrushes that you're never going to use. It's okay to let go of paper that you don't, that you're not going to use. Give it away. Give it away to someone. Just let it go. Because I think it's important to, again, I'm not sure what the psychology is. I'm not sure what the connection is between that rule and debt, mm -hmm. but it's there. And I think it has to do with some kind of, Maybe it might be growing up with scarcity. Yeah, I could definitely see that. In, or living in a world with scarcity. Or living in a generation with scarcity. Living in a generation with scarcity, not knowing what the future holds, and feeling like you have to keep every little thing because you might not be able to afford it, or you might not be able to afford to replace it. Yeah. Or you might need it someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think, think that, I think that's one of the things that can hold us back. Totally. And and yeah, and that making decisions from a place of fear. Yes. Is is that's that's a real thing that when it becomes a pattern, it it's then you're just not you're not letting your highest self steer the ship. You know? I agree. Well, I feel like I feel like if we're talking about particularly addiction in artists and debt in artists, what is the other side of being the drunk artist, right? It's being the broke artist. It's being yeah. the he's being the artist who's so bad with money because their head is in the clouds and they're they're communing with the the animus that uh, gives inspiration on the backs of Michelangelo, right? Like they can't they they can't be good with money too. So I think in terms of I think negative tropes that artists maybe feel like either they need to live or can sort of accidentally even subconsciously make them sort of sleepwalk into living, being being broke, being in debt, being bad with money and being drunk. It's like it all is in there. Yes. I am all for the people who dive in because I did it for a very long time. I put myself into it and I dove in as hard as I could. I worked as hard as I could. I am not business savvy. Mm -hmm. I am not one of those naturally business savvy people. So I'm all for it. If you can make it work, that's good for you. But I'm leaning, I lean more towards the Elizabeth Gilbert side of things where she's like, don't quit your day job. Mm -hmm. Don't put your pressure on your work. 
Or it's like David Lynch saying, you have to have a job. Mm-hmm. Like David Lynch delivered newspapers. Um, Richard Serra had a business moving. He he like employed Chuck Close and uh, who else? Oh, Philip Glass. I think Philip Glass moved with him. Oh Philip Glass, the most overqualified moving yeah. company in all of New York. <laughs> Philip Glass was a plumber and a mm. cab driver. And I remember reading. I remember reading. Do you know Robert Hughes, the art critic? Mm-hmm. There's some yeah. famous interaction they had where he was. Robert Hughes just realized one day that Philip Glass was working on his sink. <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I, I think it, I personally, I like being able to support myself in other ways so that then I can make the art that I want and not have to have someone buy it. Mm-hmm. Like I just want to make, I want to make art. I love art making. I love printmaking. I love painting. And uh, I'm never going to stop doing that. I'm always going to make art. And uh, if I can sell it, great. If I can supplement, supplement my income from my work, great. But I don't want to have to rely on it for teeth whitening <laughs> and my retirement. It's just, too, it's too much. Like it's too expensive now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember reading that it was in like night like 1975, 1970. I remember reading some study where they had looked at the costs of things and they were saying the average graduate student or the average college student could have their own apartment, own their own car, pay for their gas, buy all their food, by take care of all their bills and all of their needs with a part-time job at their yep. university while paying their way through school. Yeah. You know, and you wonder why the boomers think that we're trading avocado toast for housing. <laughs> and then like the the housing markets are insane. You know, it's it's just a different world. So Yeah, my my dad went to a, f- a few colleges, but one was Fairhaven up in Everett. Hmm. And I remember as a kid going back to Everett for a visit and sitting in the Mexican restaurant where he worked part-time and paid his tuition and all of his bills and had a little beer money left over (laughs) by making salsa, you know? (laughs) Exactly. It's just like, could you imagine? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. No, Um, I... It's yeah, and not to to be, belabor the the theme of sobriety and recovery as well, but it reminds me a little bit of of this idea of living life on life's terms. Mm-hmm. What you're saying, and and so much of addiction is is escapism and and you know wanting to see things through the lens of your hopes and your wishes and how you think the world should be and not how it is. And that using is a way to try and bend it to your will. Mm-hmm. That's sort of realizing that if, if I can look realistically about the generation that I am in, not the generation that I think it would have been fun to be a part of, mm. that's the life on life's terms right there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So 
what are you making? What like now that you have this the the, the pressure off and you're in mm. graduate school and you have access to time and you have access to equipment, you know, Alfred is is quite well stocked when it comes to different tools you can incorporate into your practice. What's that opening up for you? Well, a couple things. I realized recently that I am enjoying making artwork for the first time in 20 years. That's wonderful. Like I, I've enjoyed parts of it mm-hmm. over the, the past couple of decades, but I have kind of stumbled into a rediscovery. Uh, like I've rediscovered that I have a need to be surprised. Hmm. I really do. I need mm-hmm. to be a little bit surprised <laughs> by what I do. Because I've gotten really, I've, I'm adept at making things that are passable and that people like. Yeah. And it's a little bit soul crushing and it can be not, <laughs> not, it's not very exciting. Yeah, you like, know, so I'm when just I first, too good at making work people like. <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, what you're that's, saying. Definitely, that's definitely not what I'm saying. But I but I can make work that's passable and consistent. And I feel like I think of what you're saying is that like you know a formula, right? Yeah. That's, that's I, exactly. successful and you and you're really good at implementing it. Exactly. And if your job is to make work that sells, mm-hmm. Breaking outside of that formula is not a safe bet. Well, know? and then because of the added pressures of social media, the love hate of Instagram, mm-hmm. then you share something that is breaking out of that formula. And if it's not received well, it it inevitably will affect how you feel oh, I'm about sure. it. Sure. Which I which I also don't love. Like I'm like, what is the point of social media if it's stifling us? You know, because it, it's like being influenced and guided by these like outside voices. Yeah, so I I have found that I need I need the element of surprise and in my work and in my practice. And the way that I've done that is that I have to build in systems of I have to build it in. I have to build in a system of of variables that I cannot control. Mm. Or I just have to be open and just try new things. Like I've been making a lot of woodcuts on this amazing 1930s German-made offset press. Mm-hmm. That one that you saw, it's huge. Just like a big, beautiful press. It's so much fun to work on that. And I'm using lithography inks, which I've never used before. And they're transparent and so they layer in a way that I'm not accustomed to. And I actually, actually, this is the first time that I've made color prints. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I have purposely, <laughs> purposely limited myself to making only black and white prints up until this point. Mm-hmm. Because I was an oil painter and everything was so highly rendered with my oil paintings. And one of the reasons why I why I transitioned to printmaking, it was a deliberate choice where I would spend literally years sometimes on a painting yeah, and then not sell it for very much money. I would sell it, but I mean, they would take me years. And at some point I realized, oh yeah, you can actually just make a print and make 20 of them and make just as much money as a painter, as a painting that you labor on. 
And then guess what? You get to keep one. Yeah. Or you can share some with your friends. Mm-hmm. So printmaking has been an antidote to hoarding, like art hoarding. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm building in these systems and I I have been mixing woodcuts with cyanotypes. I've been very into cyanotypes and drawing on my prints. Before, all of my printmaking was about repeatability. Mm-hmm. Because if you can repeat it, you can document it, and then you can sell it. But really what I've been focusing on is monoprints and just making all of these variations. Yeah. I think I made about 100, 100 or so variations of this woodcut that I was working on recently. And it was just fun. It was just enlivening, enlivening in a way that I'm not accustomed to mm-hmm. with my work. So when you talk about, yeah, the the systems or the variables that you can't control, Mm. that's been an interesting idea for me as well, particularly as I think about new media and electronic art and how that Mm. really lends itself to building in systems that you can't control. Mm -hmm. And, And then when people are doing analog art, how do you do that? Like, can you think, can you give us an example of a, of a way in which you've got a system of making that allows that surprise because there's either something that's hidden from you or not controlled by you in the making? Absolutely. Well, right now I have been really into the cyanotype process. So cyanotypes, as you know, the cyanotype material is a light sensitive liquid, you know, you mix up these cyanide-derived compounds and you brush it on the paper and then you use a film negative, you expose it, and or you don't have to use a film negative. You can use whatever to basically burn the image into the paper. But I have found that if, because the, the cyanotype liquid, the material that you paint on, the mixture, that's water-based. And if I paint it over an oil-based woodcut, there's often some kind of resistance or refraction of the cyanotype material that I can't control. So I will make a woodcut and then I'll do a separate image over that woodcut with the cyanotype. And then it's just a total shock to me every time I pull it out of the water bath. It really is like surprising. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Like I was just not expecting that. And that's really fun for me. Like I just, I, I have to build it in because I will, I will naturally want to control everything to the, to the utmost degree and kind of kill all the joy out of it. So yeah. <laughs> I need a way to like keep it fresh and keep you're it fun. Like, you're saving yourself from yourself, right? Exactly. And the, yeah. the other thing is, I think I shared some of my recent work with you. So I've been using the Alfred University and the expanded media department has these amazing old AGFA photo processors. Mm. And they're basically like this old machine and you can make these huge 17 by 22 inch photo negatives. You can just send a file over, you make a huge photo negative, you take it to another machine, you develop it right there. And then you just have this big photo negative. So Mm. I can make images I can make drawings and then make negatives of that and then use those to make these cyanotypes. And I can use those over the woodcuts 
So it can still be precise. It can still be the drawing just the way that I want it. But then it's like the way that you paint on the cyanotype material is totally mystifying to me. Like I don't fully understand it. I've also been drawing in the dark room. So I'll go in and I'll draw on my images with colored pe- pencils in the dark room. I can't see what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. So that yeah. when I put the, the cyanotype in the water bath and it's got woodcut and it's got colored pencil on there, it's just surprising. And it's been it's been fun. That's so interesting because yeah. I was I've seen the colored pencil work on your mm-hmm. prints and I was curious about the looseness of the application because it doesn't it it's it has such a different feel to the other work you're doing and so it makes sense that you're you're doing it kind of half blinded really we're just trying things out yeah totally <laughs> better for worse. like i've had some a lot of them don't turn out very well or some of them are like eh, okay but i've had a couple that i like and mm-hmm. i think this is just part of it and then the One of the things that I really enjoy about Joseph Shearer and his practice is that guy is, he's amazing in terms of how open he is to different Mm. processes. Yeah. Like one of the things I'm really learning from him is to just be open to the process. So that's where I feel like I'm at. I'm just at a really good point where the colored pencil may look like one thing on one print. And if I like it, great. I can make a silk screen of that and then I can repeat it on another print. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. I just feel like I'm in, a, in the sweet spot where I'm being experimental, but I'm open to just trying different techniques to get different things. Because I'm, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have access to this amazing equipment after school. Yeah. Or I might have bits and pieces if I purchase them myself. But I'm just trying to take advantage of this while I'm, while I'm in the program. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I've also always wanted to ask you what your connection is to the rabbit. Oh, the rabbit. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted a an easily distinguishable image, emblem for my work. And the hare is my spirit animal. No, really? You know, I'm like a toothy, vigilant little hare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like a little bunny. I'm like a toothy little hair. Your hair. So yeah, it's just something that I feel connected to. And yeah, it's something that's been in my work for a very long time. Gotcha. Because yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd noticed it. Well, it's your sort of the logo of your of your mm-hmm. studio. But then I would also notice rabbits showing up here and there in your, your work throughout the years. So I was I was just curious about that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just wanted a chop. I wanted a chop and I wanted to use something that's personal to me mm-hmm. and just evolved over the years. So. Totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mike, what are you looking forward to? What's What's on the horizon for you in the next few months and weeks that is – giving you some life right now? That's a great question. I'm, I am really excited to get back to school in the fall and get printmaking again. I've got a lot of ideas, really been enjoying the process of making a woodcut and then a cyanotype and then printing back over that same image with woodcuts again, huh? using all the same in- imagery and plates and kind of like layering them has been really enjoyable for me. So I'm excited to get back to that and kind of hone in some of those some of those images and make some new work. 
Yeah. Um, get locked back into the studio. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you and Tim and Alfred and yeah. getting to walk with your dogs and oh my hang gosh. out. Are you seeing that she's like upside down right now? Dude, you were talk we were talking about like quality of life and taking breaks and I was like, look at Lucy, just loving life. That's that right there. That's break taking. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She knows like you can't work hard all the time. <laughs> She's already barked at the mailman today. Fucking oh, yeah. like, time for another eight hours of sleep. Yeah. 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 It was so good talking to you, Miranda. Yeah. This was, was really, really fun. fun. This was really fun. Yeah. And I'm really excited for us to live in the same town. I am too. I think I it's going to be really good to continue to share conversation and, and yeah. share artistic practice and, walk dogs and i i think it's going to be a great way to have autumn in 2023 absolutely yeah i think you i think you too and your your pups are going to love it there yeah it'd be I nice to get a little small town a little bit of small town yeah, life a little bit of small town living you went from bangkok to, to baby town little town to the village of alfred of 700 people Oh, my Lord. Pros <laughs> and cons, ups and downs. Well, Mike, where can people find you and follow you and see your work? I try to be active on Instagram, and you can find me at Mike Schultz Studio, and you can always see my work at MikeSchultzStudio.com. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I will put a link to all of that in the show notes, and thank you so much for coming Where on for a chat. Thank you so much for having me on. This was so fun to talk with you about all of these different topics. And yeah, thanks so much. This was really a pleasure and an honor. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Frank Rose, the owner of Echo Mano and Echo Gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We talk about how he went from artist to gallerist, curation as a creative act, falling in love with the printmaking of Oaxaca, and the possible ghosts in his basement. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 